7-8-3. When somebody uses this contact, will they be getting a hold of you directly or would they be getting a hold of somebody else? Well, in this case, that is my phone number. I probably should give them the other phone number that has sort of a voicemail message in case they want to reach somebody if I'm in a training or something like that. Would uh -huh. you like me to share that one also? Yes, please. So that number is 503-832-0787. And that's the number that would have a voicemail message. And, and if even if I'm in a training or, you know, gone to do something for somebody, they, there's still people who, who check that voicemail message. So if people have a more generic question, they can certainly call that number. All right. Thank you for um, doing the interview today. It's been very informative. And I hope to have you uh, back again soon. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed being able to talk with you today too, John. So I appreciate you helping get the information out into the world. listening to KBOO Portland. The Homelessness Marathon is America's only national radio broadcast focusing on homelessness and poverty. The Homelessness Marathon will air on Wednesday, December 9th. I wish they would do something about getting people off the streets. I'm not giving up and I don't want nobody to feel sorry for me. The 22nd Annual Homelessness Marathon will air on Wednesday, December 9th, right here on this radio station. Today from the Wings Archive, Successes of Leaderless Organizing. New York lesbian novelist and playwright Sarah Schulman tells Laura Yaros about ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and how it led her to co-found Lesbian Avengers. There's a river of birds in migration. Welcome to Wings, a series of news and current affairs programs by and about women around the world, produced and distributed by the Women's International News Gathering Service. This program is called Matrix, and we are Canada's longest-running women's radio program, and mighty proud of that. My name is Laura Yarrison. I am your host and technician. Our main feature for today is an in-depth interview with Sarah Schulman, and she's written about uh, eight or nine novels, uh, starting with the Sophie Horowitz story, and then there was uh, Girls' Visions and Everything, After Dolores, People in Trouble, um, and more recent ones have been Rat Bohemia and Shimmer, and she's coming out with a new one called The Child sometime this year. She's also written plays, and she's been a pioneer activist in many major movements such as ACT UP, the AIDS Coalition to Unleash Power, and Lesbian Avengers. And we will be talking extensively about those two movements in the interview that you're about to hear. So here uh, I proudly present uh, Sarah Schulman. 
I love to try to understand things, and because of that, I'm quite solution-oriented. And that's probably part of why I'm an artist, is that I'm constantly into the problem-solving that you have to do to create a book or to create a play or to be part of a political movement, to, to come up with a new idea like the Act Up Oral History Project, to go forward and follow through on something over a long period of time. All of that is about curiosity. Being as you were here to discuss the ACT UP Oral History Project, let's let's talk about that a little bit. Or I, I, maybe we should go back even further because apparently you were one of the people that were behind the first ACT UP actions. Is that am I correct in that? That's probably that's how you're billed, but I don't know if that that's. Uh, um, I it was not a founder of ACT UP. ACT UP was founded in February 1986, and I started uh, participating in actions the following July, and I was a member for about seven years. I was never in leadership in ACT UP. I was always a rank-and-file person there, but it was a big part of my life. And at the same time that I joined ACT UP, um, I co-founded the Lesbian and Gay Experimental Film Festival with Jim Hubbard, who's been my collaborator now for 23 years. And the festival's called Mix, and it's going strong after all this time. In fact, we're now showing filmmakers who were not born when we founded it, which is great. But anyway, Jim uh, was also involved in AIDS, and it was a filmmaker. And in 2001, which was the 20th anniversary of AIDS, I was driving in a car in L.A. and listening to NPR, and on the radio they were talking about the history of AIDS, and they said, at first America had trouble with people with AIDS, but then they came around. And I just thought, wow, they are going to completely erase the entire history of AIDS activism and the thousands of people who committed their lives to transforming this country. And, you know, as a person who has survived and witnessed all of this, and there are very few people who've witnessed the whole thing who are still alive, because I started covering AIDS in 1982. But uh, I just thought, you know, I can't let this happen. It's my responsibility. So Jim and I decided to start a second project after our 20-something year project of Mix, and that was the, what we call the ACT UP Oral History Project. And that you can find that online at ACT UP, uh, www.actuporalhistory.org. So today we've interviewed 70 surviving members of ACT UP New York. Um, I do all the interviewing, and Jim and James Wincy do the camera work. So it's a very small op- family mom-and-pop operation. And the interviews are from two to four hours. And everything is available for free because that's part of our, you know, worldview. We really believe in access. It's very important to us. So if you go to the website, you can watch five minutes of streaming video of each person's interview so you see who they are. And you can also download the entire transcript of their interview for free. We've also put copies of the tapes and transcripts in the San Francisco and New York public libraries as well. And a few universities have bought complete editions for their libraries. The reason that we made the transcripts available is that preservation issues for websites and for digital in general are unknown. No one knows how long these medium are going to survive. A lot of things that were shot in early video are now disintegrating, and they turned out not to have very much shelf life. So we felt that the hard copies of the interviews would actually be be perhaps the only surviving record of this project, and that by making them available so broadly, they would be dispersed around the world and they would have a better chance of surviving. But what we've discovered is that 15,000 people have downloaded these transcripts, and when we traced the downloads, we found that many of them came from Eastern Europe and Asia, which I interpret to mean that these are people with AIDS around the world who don't have activist movements and are looking for strategies and tactics. And of course, this is reaching many more people than any book ever would, because because it contains so much more information. 
So that's the basis of the oral history project. Now, Jim has, is a film preservationist, and he's preserved 2,000 hours of archival footage of film and video about AIDS from that era. When we were curating the Mix Festival, many of our filmmakers died, and we were familiar with a great deal of work that suddenly fell off the radar. So Jim actually went out and literally got the work, whether it meant going to people's parents' houses, garages, or digging out boxes from under beds or whatever, and preserved it. And we made all of that available for free to the public at the New York Public Library. And now we're beginning the process of integrating this archival footage with the contemporary interviews to create a feature film, which we're calling United in Anger, The History of ACT UP. Uh, what's been, we, you know, we've taken an unorthodox approach, which is what we, I've taken to everything my whole life and seems to be the only approach that works. But, you know, there's a lot of theory about oral history, that you're supposed to be a detached, uh, objective outsider and this sort of thing. Frankly, having done all the 70 interviews myself, I can't imagine how an outsider could have ever done this. Because I knew all these people. I know what they did. I know what they experienced. When I talk to them, they know that I was there, too. There's a bond from the beginning. I think when you watch the interviews or when you watch clips, you can see how relaxed and intimate all the conversations are. These are profoundly interesting people. These are people who rose to the challenge of history, and that makes them exceptional individuals. They have very interesting things to say. And I can say to somebody, well, I remember when you did XYZ in 1991, what were you thinking then? I have that knowledge of them. Um, and I just can't imagine how an academic could get that depth. Also, in terms of how to structure uh, oral history in a way that evokes the deepest type of conversation, we looked at two different uh, Holocaust archives. One is the Shoah Project, which is funded by Steven Spielberg. It's an enormous project. They did tens of thousands of interviews. They had thousands of interviewers who were following a rigid a list of questions. And it's, when, you, when you look at it, it's basically designed to refute Holocaust revisionism. I think that that's really the point of it. And it mostly focuses on the actual events of oppression that people experience in documenting them. But we also were very interested in a much smaller one at Yale that was sponsored by a family whose name escapes me at the moment. But this was about asking people who they were before the events. And that I found much more appealing. So when you look at our interviews, the first 40 minutes Minutes, the first tape is the person's background before they got involved in ACT UP. And that's quite interesting because you really see how diverse ACT UP was. People came from every kind of background, socioeconomic, political, educational level, every kind, the entire range of previous political experience from profoundly active Black Panthers or core or that kind of thing to people who had never had a political thought in their lives. And that's when you really see how a true crisis, when addressed in a democratic way, can unite people who are just have very, very little in common, frankly, except the ability, the wish to make change. But for everyone who we interview who is positive or has AIDS, we ask them what their drug regimen is. And that is very interesting because different kinds of people are on different kinds of treatments based on who they are, based on what their personalities are, what kinds of things they can handle, what their finances are. And there's been a lot of very frank disclosure and the issue of people who've recently seroconverted. We've also discussed that, quite frankly. Wow. Yeah, when you think about it, eh, there's people who, I mean, people are still getting it now, even with all the information that we have. And that's another, brings up another question. I imagine that since you were in 
involved for seven years and you got to know a lot of the people who were active in it since you were active in it as well and a lot of them died of course and how the hell do you deal with that the fact that you know you're working side by side with so many people you must have gotten close to certain people and then you end up losing them I don't know how do you deal with that that's something that Jim and I are trying to understand about ourselves through the process of having this this group conversation which is really what we're doing Mm -hmm. and what I perceive so far is that this is very unprocessed that it's a traumatized group of people survivors of the epicenter of the AIDS crisis I would say are people who are are living with trauma that there's a lot of flat affect and shutdownness and and part of it is because the culture does not reflect that these events ever occurred I mean most people are walking around today with the ghosts of their friends lovers community on their backs large numbers of dead people on their backs with no acknowledgement in the culture that this ever occurred or that these losses ever took place. Not only is there very little opportunity to remember those people or to process the experience, but mainstream representation of AIDS and iconic works of entertainment or mass cultural works don't really address the experience. So it's become an invisible experience that individuals really don't know how to face or handle and that history has not accepted or integrated. So this all remains to be determined in the future. One of the things, again, that impressed me listening to your talk last night was the how ACT UP functioned, that it was uh, such a, it was a more kind of grassroots or democratic type of organization, at least for a number of years when it was functioning well. And maybe you could just explain a little bit what you meant about that. And I presume that, that that's why it was so effective because I, f- I think a lot of movements, they're not as effective or they alienate people and they don't seem to get it done. You know, they spend too much time in fighting and not enough time on the action that they united around to begin with. Well, you know, the old left model was the centralized party, like the Communist Party. You have a central committee. They debate theory, and through theory, they develop praxis, and they determine the actions for the masses, and the masses follow the central committee. This does not work. (laughs) And the modern version of that, which is consensus, equally doesn't work because it also demands a certain kind of homogeneity of approach. What ACTUP did that was quite brilliant was a kind of simultaneity of activity in that each person was allowed to respond to the crisis in the way that made sense to them personally based on where they were at as an individual. So if what you wanted to do was go to the Asian gay bars on the East 50s and do Mandarin sex education, that's what you should do. And if what you wanted to do was dress up as a Republican and go to the Republican women's meeting and hand out buttons that say lesbians for Bush, that's what you should do. And if what you wanted to do was study the epidemiology of a particular infection, that's what you should do. And if you didn't like somebody else's idea, then you shouldn't do their idea. But they can still do it. So there's a control of other people's actions, and no one is controlling your actions. Everyone is allowed to respond the way that they need to respond. Now, when you have a structure like that and you have a mass movement, because we're talking about a core vanguard of 600 to 1,000 people, and then a counterculture around that of about 7,000 people who would show up and participate in actions, and then the larger hundreds of thousands of people around the world who were the broader counterculture. Then when you have that many people involved and so much simultaneity of action, you really have a transformative force in the culture. 
And when you facilitate people doing their best authentically, then you've got a movement that really works. The downfall is trying to control other people's actions or focusing on theoretical discussion. Theoretical discussion in my many years of politics has never advanced anybody. I really don't see it as applicable. In the early 90s, myself and a f- five other women founded a group called the Lesbian Avengers, which was a very interesting anarchist movement that caught on like wildfire and then completely died. But for two years, it was quite interesting. And one of the primary rules of the Lesbian Avengers was that you could never have a theoretical discussion in a meeting. It was not allowed. You could propose an action, and then you could have a very broad conversation about how to enact that action. And when you did that, when you had an applied conversation focused on something material, all the theoretical issues do emerge, but they emerge in real-life terms. And that's what keeps it effective. As soon as you get into theoretical debate, you're doomed. That's the end. So, you know, these these were the things that made ACT UP work. Now, there was a sense of urgency. People were dying in the organization on a regular basis. So their lives were literally at stake. And this is what made, and that's why it's such an interesting model, because you see that when people actually really need to achieve a goal, you see what falls by the wayside. Theory, control, all of these kinds of things. And you see what remains, proactivity. That becomes the the hallmark of uh, a movement that must be successful, that's desperate to be successful. So it's, you know, it's very instructive. A really good point. You know, I I do know here in Montreal, so many times the lesbian community was just bogged down in theoretical discussions and bitter, bitter arguments and got taken very personally. And it was all basically about theoretical matters. So the movement really kind of fell apart here, became very fragmented and, and really got bogged down in so much stuff that It's just incredibly frustrating, and a lot of people just got fed up and the hell with this, I don't want to be involved anymore. And Let me address that, because I've had a lot of experience with the lesbian community over the years. I don't even know if there is one now, but whatever there is, I've had a lot of experience with it. And when you have a, com- a constituency of people who have been told all their lives that they don't matter, who have been treated with profound disrespect, who do not have basic legal rights, and who, in a media culture, do not have representation. Because if you live in a media culture and you are not represented, you are grossly disadvantaged. That is who we're talking about when we're talking about a lesbian constituency. That group of people are very, very hard for them to believe that they can take an action and have a consequence. It's really um, a self-perception issue. So a lot of the obstructionism that you're discussing is really an acting out of what people have received emotionally from their experiences in society, in their families, in the media, that they are not people who can achieve and they are not people who can have impact. So when you're in leadership in a constituency that's been treated that badly, your responsibility is to help people believe that their actions can have consequences. And once they feel that, they will cease to be obstructive in that way. So that's why we had these kinds of rules in Lesbian Avengers, because we were dealing with people who had never had power. They had never been trained to have power. They had never been trained to have influence. So once we say, the only thing you can bring up here is what you're going to do, and if you disagree with what that other person's going to do, you can't do a critique of it. You could only propose a better idea. Then the construction is that people can only behave like people with power, and then you have a positive result. But it's very hard to maintain because psychologically it goes against everything people have been told about themselves. And at some point there's an implosion. But until that happens, it's quite beautiful. It's really transforming. 
In case you've just joined us or have perhaps forgotten, I'm Laura Yarrison. I am your host and technician, and you were listening to an, an interview with author, playwright, activist, teacher Sarah Schulman talking about the ACT UP Oral History Project. And in the second part of this interview, we get a little more in-depth about the Lesbian Avengers group and um, just kind of the nature of why movements are successful or not. Um, but we kind of backtracked a little bit uh, because I was explaining to her that I, like many other lesbians at the time, that ACT UP was um, in its full uh, in its in its heyday, shall we say, we felt a sense of frustration. A lot of us lesbians that so many lesbians and and women generally were putting so much energy into uh, groups like ACT UP and other AIDS support organizations, which at the time were mostly run and uh, catering to men, uh, especially gay men, but even men in general, and we're ignoring the fact that a lot of women also got AIDS, especially women of color, and that lesbians also had their own concerns as, for example, as women, a lot of lesbians were getting breast cancer and still do, and there was not uh, as much support going around for that or just generally for our own community, which had so few resources. And um, Sarah addresses that a little bit in this next part, and we talk more about uh, the Lesbian Avengers and, uh, and other issues as well. So here is part two of uh, our interview. The relationship between women and ACT UP, or lesbians and ACT UP, is quite complex because lesbians gained a lot by being an ACT UP. The first thing is that men have more money than women, and that's the way it goes. Men earn more money than women do, and gay men, gay male community is the community of men's incomes, usually without having to pay for dependents in most cases. So when I first started to work in ACT UP, it was the first time I had worked in a political movement where I had access to men's money. In a way, I always say it was my first experience with heterosexual privilege because you get heard, you can do things, you have resources, and it, it's maturing because it is infantilizing to never, ever have resources. Once you have resources and you're playing at a higher level, you become more mature as an activist. And I think that we all benefited from that experience. We also made an enormous contribution to women with AIDS. ACT UP is the, is the primary force in the world that improved the condition of women with AIDS globally. It was because of ACT UP and, you know, and many, many different kinds of campaigns over the years. So lesbians were able to help women through ACT UP in a way that no, nothing else was able to address. The downside was not that lesbian energy was taken away from lesbian issues in ACT UP. That's not what happened. What happened is that there was no reciprocity, so that the men involved in those movements did not in turn commit resources and energy to lesbian things. But the lesbians who were in ACT UP actually gained access and skills that benefited the lesbian community more broadly, I believe. So it's a complicated relationship. The reason we founded the Lesbian Avengers was because at the beginning of ACT UP, much of the leadership were women who had come out of the feminist movement and who had been trained in leadership in feminism. Year, seven years later, 
there were younger women who were now having their first political experiences in the mixed gay movement in ACT UP. They had not had the feminist experience before, and they were not rising to leadership. So it became clear to us as observers that young women were not going to get trained in leadership in the mixed gay movement in the way that they had in feminism. And that was why we founded the Lesbian Avengers. And thousands of women went through the Lesbian Avengers, probably 20 to 40,000 women globally went through the Lesbian Avengers. And many of them got basic organizing skills that they could not have gotten in the mixed movement. So that was one of its goals. And it wasn't a negative thing on ACT UP, but I think that we had matured through ACT UP. And we were now in a position to be able to recast a new kind of lesbian movement that was much more empowered and action-oriented to try to create almost kind of like a new lesbian, almost like the new woman of the 1920s, right, as a result of our ACT UP experiences. And it it was moderately successful for a short period of time. So what do you think made made it last only a short time? First of all, most social movements don't, successful social movements don't last very long. I think it was primarily an anarchist movement, and anarchist movements have a hard time sustaining. And I also think that its basic principles, which were to be action-oriented and not theoretical, were very, very hard to maintain. Um, they're only, you're only able to maintain those if you have a critical mass of people in your group who are empowered enough to be able to keep that focus. I think that people who feel powerless feel like the only power they have is to say no. And when you have a constituency of people who feel powerless, they become very obstructionist. And it's very hard to overwhelm that with the sense of being able to say, yes, I have an idea, here's what it is, and I'm going to carry it through. And that's painful to people to make that transition because it means facing their former self. They say that if you pierce somebody's facade, you pierce their heart. And if someone is that kind of like young or that type of lesbian who only feels powerful because they're saying, f*** you, and you want to pierce that so that they can be a person who says, I can, they have to face the pain of what they've experienced that created that negative person in the first place. So there's a lot of acting out that comes as a result of that. So I think that those issues, the lack of structure, the lack of a large enough of critical mass of empowered people, the general issues of of social movements, and also that we were at a moment when direct action movements were were on the wane in general. This is going into the middle 90s when you start to see the decline in political activism broadly. So I think that that's sort of why it didn't last very long. Just a quick example of the kinds of things that the Lesbian Avengers did do. Okay, let me try to remember. There were so many. Well, our very first action was there was a public school in Queens where the teacher, the principal had banned the word lesbian from being discussed in the classroom. This was at the time of what was called the Rainbow Curriculum, which was a big debate in the New York City public schools about whether or not homosexuality would be discussed in elementary school level. Of course, the assumption is that there's no gay children, right, and that no children have gay parents, and that no gay children, no children know any gay people, and so therefore it should never be mentioned. So we went to this school, with, uh, we had a marching band of women in Catholic school girl uniforms. <laughs> we stood at the gate of the school on the first day of class with these huge balloons. We played a band, we smiled, we laughed, and we handed balloons to every child going into school. And each balloon said, ask about lesbians. <laughs> so they all went into school and said, what's a lesbian? <laughs> so the ban on discussing lesbians was broken. And that was the type of thing that we did, very effective, Funny, creative, not really negative, no negative energy there. And that was how we started those types of actions. 
we would do things like, you know, there's always a lesbian in every office, and she's usually the secretary. So in Colorado, they were having an anti-gay initiative. And, of course, there was a lesbian secretary in the office who was faxing us the full itinerary of the mayor of Denver's entire, you know, every day where he was. And we managed to follow him and be at all of his meals, all of his meetings, where he was staying. I mean, it was incredible, you know, that sort of thing. We ended up doing work on anti-gay ballot initiatives in Maine and Idaho. We sent out task forces who went and lived in those states. These were states that did not have enough openly gay people to be able to organize their own opposition, and they needed help from other places. People went and lived there from the Avengers. In Mississippi, you may remember, there was um, two lesbians who were being harassed, and their their pets were murdered, and, and so the lesbian Avengers went down there. So we actually did physical protection and support around the country. In that regard, um, we did so many things. And then, you know, we started the dyke marches. We did the first dyke march in Washington, D.C. We did not have a permit. We had 20,000 women. We marched without any permit or police permission through Washington, D.C. And then everyone who was in that went back to wherever they had come from and brought dyke marches with them. And that's why there there were dyke marches all over the country and in Europe. I don't know if they exist in Canada. But just because we we had had this international gathering, everyone had this fantastic experience, and they went back and recreated it where they lived. You know, these types of things. And it went on for about two years. At one point, there were 22 chapters on four continents. And then, it, and then you know, like, I would think it would all be dead. And then one day, I remember I went to Corvallis, Oregon, for some reason. I had to give a talk. And there was a lesbian Avenger chapter there. I didn't even know that they existed. And these were these very fierce young women who had passed as men and gotten into the promise keepers. You know, so it was like, it was quite bold, interesting people. And wherever I go, I meet people who say, hey, I was a lesbian Avenger in, you know, Texas, or I was a lesbian Avenger, and that's cool. What do you think we can do now? And is there anything happening out there anymore? And and what the hell can we do? I don't know. You know, since you're a student of history, you know that things change. Yeah. I mean, even the Holocaust ended, McCarthyism ended, and, uh, you know, the trick when you're in the middle of a cultural disaster like we're in the middle of now is to keep your eye on the prize and keep your integrity and have the long view and not sell out what you know to be true for some kind of immediate false satisfaction. That's the challenge to the individual, right? And then, you know, I believe, or I have observed from history, that there's a pendulum that swings. And there will be a new movement of resistance and rebellion, but it's not going to be created by us. It's going to be created by younger people, and it's going to take a form that we can't recognize because it's going to reflect the actual moment that we're living in, the technological moment and the popular cultural moment. And when they uh, develop it, I'm going to be there supporting them. But we're not going to be able to create leadership for that because it's not our historical moment. So um, I'm confident that people will, will respond. I feel that right now it's like 1956. And in 1964, something really great is going to happen. And, you know, we just have to wait. And that's, that's, it's frustrating, but you can't force it. It has to be in the zeitgeist. It, that's why you get all these kind of vanguard movements that are so pathetic and become so strange when they try to force something historically that it's just not the right time. Since this program was recorded, the series Matrix has ended. Laura Yaros now co-produces Older Women Live on Community Radio CKUT in Montreal. Sarah Schulman has continued to write more books. The ACT UP archive is still online. To find out more about WINGS, email wings at wings.org. 
Wings thanks all our supporters, including your local community radio station, Suzette Cullen and Genevieve Vaughn, editor of the book Women and the Gift Economy. The Wings Sound logo is from Libana's album A Circle is Cast. I'm Frida Worden. This is the Women's International News Gathering Service. It's 10.30 in the morning, December 4th, 2020. This is KBU, so of course it's time for Film at 11. Hello everybody, this is DK Home. Today we will cover some classics, old and recent, from the silver screen. Let's hear first from Jeff Godsell on another Essentials of Cinema. I don't quite know where to put Michael Mann in the hierarchy of directors we like. I haven't seen everything he's done, but what I have seen, I've liked. Incredibly accomplished and prolific as he is, I'm sure there are plenty of critical pieces written about him, highlighting recurring themes in his films and all that. I just don't know what they are. His strong visual sense is unmistakable, and he doesn't shy away from risky material all of which reminds